afternoon, and welcome to Let's Talk, the pastor is in. I'm program host Kip Allen. Let's Talk is the program for the Christian layman, you know, the Lutheran who believes but has questions. In short, well, the program's designed for someone just like me. You know, there's a lot I don't understand. It's not necessarily soul-shaking. It might just be something that's been on my mind for a while. I find that rather than getting into a deep chapter and verse theological discussion, sometimes a casual front porch style talk with the pastors, the best way to understanding. That's what this program is all about. Today's guest is Bill Swirla of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. I have my questions. I'm sure you have yours. And you can send your questions by email at any time to letstalk at kfuo.org. Or you can call in at, during the program at area code 314-821-0850 in the St. Louis area. Now that includes Metro East. Or toll free anywhere in the lower 48 at 1-800-730-2727. Bill, welcome back to the front porch. Hey, good to be. I, it sounds like we're in your wine cellar. Really? Yeah, you got a you, well. You've got kind of this kind of you know it's um, echoey. But shall we say? Doesn't it oh, doesn't dear. sound like a front porch? But um, hey, we got to work with what we got to work with here. You're right. I mean, after we all, are, you're in California. I'm in Missouri, so there could be an echo. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and hello, hello, are, hello, hello, hello. We are socially distanced, being a couple of old guys. So we're we're. Uh, Several, we're many states apart. We're about two thousand miles apart, so I think that's that's safe enough, isn't it? In these these times yeah, of true. social distancing. Plus, I spent a lot of time on the left coast, so I'm rather familiar with it. <laughs> How are you? I'm very, very good. I mean, we're doing this. Uh, okay. Yeah, we're doing this social distancing. Uh, I'm working from home, as most of the uh, KFUO staff is. We do have yeah. occasionally one person showing up at the station to keep uh keep watching things stephanie licklider is running the board in this case uh, but i'm at home and you're out in california so that leaves a lot of time to do things for example reading and i just read a rather interesting article that was titled sola scientia now does this ring a bell with you yeah that that's that's going to be one of mine in, in my my uh my series called the COVID-19 chronicles. Uh, these are pandemic reflections. <laughs> you know, when the, one of the problems when you're when you're kind of locked in, uh, although I get out a little bit, but but uh, when you are are uh, kind of locked in, that uh, creates more time to write, which in my case is very dangerous because I start to put thoughts down on paper and uh, and uh, kind of just throw them out there. But this has been a, a rich time. I think for reflection, I, I know it's very trying on people, and I don't want to diminish uh, people's suffering and and the potential. I mean, we, there's there's a lot more that's going to happen. I mean, there's going to be economic suffering. There's certainly uh, family tensions, and and uh, and our congregations too suffer because we're unable to gather in the ordinary way. So I don't want to diminish any of that, but. There is a lot going on, and I think it, it, there's a lot to think about. So one of the things I wanted to think about was the role of science in our life, because this, at the moment, is a very science-forward situation, right? That's true. And, you know, one of the things I have always questioned, you know, you always hear that science and religion are incompatible. I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, 
they either in some ways complement each other or they're completely separate. As you pointed out in the article, you know, science tends to be agnostic. You well, know, religion pro is yeah, pro you know, properly. Properly so, science should be agnostic. Uh, there's a great statement by the National Academy for the Sciences that talks about that, that says, you know, in spiritual matters or in matters that we would label, quote, unquote, supernatural, that is beyond the natural world, science has nothing to say. Um, the tendency, I think, on the part of some atheists is to co-opt science and to use science to basically say that science has replaced or disproven religious faith but that's a very unscientific way of speaking because science deals exclusively with what is observable in the natural world. So it's the observables and the measurables, uh, not the revealed stuff. Uh, that's really not a question for science. It's a philosophical question. It's a question for what we call epistemology. How do you know what you know? But it's not really a scientific question because the way science knows things is very limited. It's through observation. Through, um, through gathering data, whether by experimentation or by digging in the ground or whatever you do, and uh, by coming up with best reasonable natural explanations for the observed data. That's really all scientific method is. Well, one of the things in your article, uh, believe it or not, reminded me of a Hagar the Horrible comic strip. <laughs> that was a good comic strip, by the way. I remember Hagar. Oh, I love that one. <laughs> and Hagar had Hagar had gone to Doctor Zook because he was sick, uh -huh. and uh, Doctor Zook is talking to him and says, "You know, people think that disease is caused by bad air and things. You know, that's not true. Really, it's these tiny, almost invisible organisms that exist in your body, and this is what's causing the problem. We men of science call these things evil spirits." <laughs> well, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of, of Luther's day. Uh, Luther, Luther had to deal with quite an epidemic. I don't know if they would have called it a pandemic because people didn't move around quite as much. Uh, pandemics are caused by people uh, being able to travel globally at literally the drop of a hat. So uh, what starts in one place quickly becomes everybody's problem because of travel. Uh, but in Luther's day, travel was a little less efficient, and so epidemics tended to be local, which is why he could do this writing about whether to stay put during a plague, because it really was a viable alternative, just get out of town, which a lot of people did. They, they abandoned their loved ones and just headed to another place that was safer. Um, but today, that's not a really viable option because everything is shared globally. But in Luther's day, they thought that plagues were caused by evil spirits that followed the air and the water. Uh, and the best remedies they would have would be to fumigate the house. I don't know what they were fumigating the house with, but, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it was smoky. Maybe <laughs> incense. I don't know. But, but, you know, they were trying to ward off evil spirits uh, by, by fumigating the house and, and that sort of thing. Um, Louis Pasteur, uh, a Christian, by the way, uh, didn't know, hadn't appeared for a few hundred years yet. He, you know, he's, he's a few hundred years down the road. So they didn't understand microbes like, you know, bacteria and viruses and whatnot. And so uh, their causality was not quite correct. That is, epidemics are not caused by evil spirits. They're caused by microbes, by bacteria, by viruses. And I think that's one of the favors that science returns to religion, basically, is that it eliminates superstition or f false causality. 
And so there's a tendency sometimes when we observe something to automatically conclude this caused that. But that's not always the case. It could be the cause. It could just be a correlation, loose or tight, or it could just be a flat-out coincidence, you know? And science kind of is a mythbuster. It's always testing cause, correlation, and coincidence to see what the relationship is between A and B. And so we know a little bit better than they know, and so we know about viruses and bacteria and the way they're transmitted. Um, and so that also gives us a greater, I think, responsibility. With knowledge comes responsibility. Uh, you could excuse Luther for going around and, and you know, doing whatever he was doing, thinking that the plague was spread by uh, evil spirits, but you can't excuse people today from, from uh, basically ignoring the science of epidemiology and basically saying, oh, you know, science doesn't know what it's talking about. We trust in God. Um, we, don't, we don't deal with sickness that way in general. When you're sick, I'll pray for you. If you like, I'll anoint you with oil, and then I'm going to send you to your doctor, and you're going to take the medicine the doctor prescribes, right, I hope? Well, yeah, that's true, but, you know, some, what's an expert? And you go to the doctor, and the doctor says something, and then you go to another doctor for a second opinion, and that doctor, using exactly the same data, will come up with a different answer. So how do we explain well, that's that? Well, that's why they call it a practice. Doctors are practicing medicine. Medicine, you know, science in general, and medicine is not really science. Medicine is applied science. Um, science actually doesn't solve problems. It, science just just asks questions and tries to answer them. That's all. Uh, well, but te well, technology. I remember, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I remember uh, when I was in high school, uh, I had a science teacher who was explaining really science is nothing more than a way of examining a situation and I think there was something like five steps there was the the initial premise there was the observation there was the hypothesis there was the experimentation and then there was the there were the results and that's all he said I mean it was just a, a particular way of examining an observable an observable situation. Now, interestingly, you know, some things we can't observe. Uh, I'm going to point out, um, well, for example, the theory of evolution. We can't observe evolution. That goes way, way beyond. It's way too slow. It can't be well, observed. You, you, you can, you can on, a, on a fast generation micro scale, what, what's sometimes called and I'm making the finger quotes here, microevolution. Um, you, you can observe evolution in bacterial colonies. Um, well, quite, I remember, quite you know, one of the, well, I remember in high school, one of the uh, biology experiments I did was to uh, take a colony of E. coli like positive and somehow be able to mutate it into an E. coli like negative colony. And what I did was I used everything from uh, oh, ultraviolet radiation to caffeine, which actually was a <laughs> did an awful lot. <laughs> that'll that'll uh, make you think about that cup of coffee. Yeah, it will. It's, it's, I mean, it was. It's it was a I was getting food. the weirdest. You know, it, it's not only a health food; it's a performance-enhancing drug. Let's face it. But uh, I, I cannot deal with life without my without my morning coffee. But oh yeah, um, no, you don't want to be around me until I've had coffee in the morning. Believe me. 
Yeah, no, but you can. Right. Yeah, and that's what that's what sometimes they call microevolution, where where you you subject like a colony of bacteria to some kind of pressure, and and then they will self-select and they will kind of mutate and do their thing, and pretty soon you'll have kind of another kind of bug, uh, which is part of the problem, by the way, with antibacterial soaps and all this antibacterial culture that we have is that we're, we're basically allowing the bacteria to select the strong and uh, eliminate the weak, and so we're getting superbugs, mm -hmm. which is really not a good idea. All this hand washing we're doing, plain soap and water. Don't use antibacterial stuff because that's, first of all, uh, COVID-2 is not a bacterium, it's a virus. And second of all, mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're, there's too much antibacterial and antibiotic stuff as it is, and that's, that's creating a problem. But evolution is not an observable. Evolution is a theory or a mechanism. And so um, mechanisms, theory is the work product of science. Science generates theory, like theology generates dogma. Uh, science generates theory, and theories are just simply best mechanisms or explanations <coughs> or models for what you observe. But the observable is that given enough time, things tend to mutate and change gradually, and sometimes those changes stick. So, you know, that, there's that. But getting back to your doctor, why are there two opinions? It's because medical practice is an applied science. It's taking what science has learned, and it's applying it in different ways. So if I go to my wood shop, I have maybe three or four ways of doing the same operation. Which one is better? Depends on what the, what the, the thing I'm working on is. If it's a small thing, I may use hand tools. If it's a big thing, I may use power tools. It's the same operation, but I'm looking at it differently. So each doctor kind of looks at this complex patient, you, in a different sort of way. And they'll have different opinions in their practice about the best way to treat you. Well, another thing that, that uh, strikes me is that we'll, we'll always hear that expression, well, this is settled science, but it is until it's disproven by science, and that has happened time and time again in history, and that's one of the beauties of, uh, of theology, because theology doesn't change. We know it's something that doesn't require proof. It is, it's, it's an inner knowledge, uh, but science, it, it's transient when it says it's something happens this way well yeah until we find out it doesn't well, that's I, I i would half agree with that science settles uh but this but it's settling is not um a permanent settling it's settled until it finds something that unsettles it you know and now sometimes that can leave you blind if, if you're comfortable with a particular theory then you tend to be a little bit skeptical if not blind to evidence that might unsettle that theory so there's a little bit of a a bias or a little bit of a, a problem of objectivity there because you and i both know we have our sacred cows we're settled on certain things like we're settled on how to interpret a certain bible passage and if somebody comes along with a different interpretation that follows all the rules of grammar and definition we get very unsettled or defensive or we just say no no that's wrong because it's not the way we're accustomed to looking at it. So, um, you know, there's a kind of a presuppositional bias that we all have, and that's why good scientific method never relies on one observer. It always relies on reproducible observations by many observers, uh, and the whole pot process of peer review and uh, multiple labs looking at the same thing kind of help overcome that, that 
that particular bias. But science does settle, and then it becomes unsettled when new data, new observations or measurements come into play that don't square with what with the settled place, like Newtonian physics. It was fine until we started messing with little particles that move really fast oh, yeah. and were really small. And all of a sudden, Newtonian physics didn't quite describe what was going on. It didn't mean it was wrong. It just needed some more stuff. And the more stuff is the theory of general relativity, you see? So, well, so Bill, you I don't know always... if I ever mentioned this. I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, but you know, my brother is a retired electrical engineer, and he was involved in some very advanced military projects. And I remember him telling me that Newton was wrong. <laughs> uh, Newton describes, you know, what we do for ninety-nine percent of what goes on in our life. Yeah, okay, we can get away with that. But the fact is that when you get right down to the nitty-gritty on how the universe works, Newton is wrong. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say he's wrong. He just doesn't go far enough because he didn't have the data to take him there. That, that's all. It's not. It's not right. You know, one of the big. I think one of the great lay mistakes in science is they think science deals in truth. Science doesn't even think about truth. That's a philosophical concept. Science basically eliminates falsehood or false false explanations. That's about all it's good for. It's really a process of trial and error and a process of elimination. But it doesn't seek truth. Truth is, is, truth is not a scientific concept at all. I think our problem, our, our problem is in two areas. One, it's in the way media portrays science uh, in a very, I would say, unscientific way. And secondly, the way public policy uses science uh, to further some particular you know, goal of a community, a nation, whatever. And, and so our current thing is a good example. Um, our public policy is following the lead of virologists and epidemiologists. Well, that's fine uh, because this is a virology problem, but our world is not a Petri dish. And the, vari the variables are much more complicated than just simply how do we contain the spread of a virus? You know, the, the, the questions are, how do we contain the spread of a virus while at the same time maintaining an economy, while at the same time maintaining the spiritual and cultural integrity of the people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so there are too many variables uh, to control, and science is into controlling variables. That's what an experiment is, controlling <coughs> your variables. And there are things where the variables simply cannot be controlled. For example, trying to explain Mona Lisa. Try to explain uh, David uh, De Pianta. Try to explain any kind of artistic event. Uh, when I was in college, I took an ROTC program called uh, Military Science, and I remember the uh, teacher there it was a it was an interesting fellow. He was an Army Ranger, saying that uh, military science is a misnomer. It's really an art. The reason being that there are so many variables that cannot be taken into account. Science deals in exactitude. Art does not. Yeah, and it, it, you know, there's a great uh, running philosophical debate about whether beauty, or uh, let's, let's take it closer to the creationist kind of uh, territory, design, whether design is uh, something that's measurable, something that is observable, or is it something that's inferred? 
So, you know, we say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, perhaps design is in the eye of the beholder, too, uh, because there are things that occur in nature that are just simply caused by natural causes, which are not designed, but they sure appear to be designed, like, you know, like faces in a rock wall or something like that. We see it and say, I see a face. Um, or we'll look at the clouds and we'll say, I see the Virgin Mary. But that's not actually there. We're just imposing our own notion of design on that event. So that's kind of a sticky question in itself. And again, philosophical, not really scientific. And perhaps that's the problem today uh, that, that I think you brought up in your article is that uh, science is not the be all and end all. It is simply a tool that is used and it's a tool that has some very strict limitations. And, and a good tool, by the way, you know, uh, all the people who like to dismiss science or deny science are the very benefactors of scientific knowledge. Uh, as they peck away on their computers to, uh, d you know, dis science, uh, forgetting the fact that all the physics and the surface chemistry and other things that are involved to make that computer possible. So, you know, it's a little disingenuine in a scientific age to dismiss or to disregard science uh, or to literally deny it when we are the main benefactors of it. But on the other hand, I think it's a huge mistake to think that that's the be all and end all of what we know. Um, that, that I think really, um, it goes to the heart of our being the image of God. Uh, in, in, you know, in Genesis, man is the image of God. The animals are not the image of God. And though we share a common biology, and science tells us that, there's something about us that's different from the animals. And, and that, that something different is that we are uniquely positioned as God's image in creation. And I think that's a heavy responsibility. Uh, on our part. We, we can't afford to behave like the animals. We're called to rise above that. Yeah. And, you know, you, you bring this up in the article, you know, Mother Nature is really a rather nasty lady. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, if, if, if science turns into philosophy, rather than just a way of knowing about the natural world and its mechanisms, uh, if science turns into a philosophy, then, you know, you're tumbling down the road to Nietzsche because it's basically blood, tooth, claw, survival of the fittest. Uh, throw the weak under the bus and let the herd develop its immunity and and you know and by the way footnote I'm really surprised at all the people who toss out herd immunity as kind of like a really good thing that's a very Darwinian way of speaking um, we're not a herd we're humanity and uh, herd immunity basically says let the thing cull the weak the sick the old the hobbled, you know, just they take, they basically take it for team humanity while the strong develop their immunity and, and forge on to live another day and reproduce some more. Uh, that's, that's really a, that's a materialist philosophy if you really want to run that to the, to its, to its final end. And uh, I think Nietzsche is applauding. Oh, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, well, maybe for selfish reasons, for example, I look at myself, I'm an old guy. I've got bad eyes. I've got bad ears. I've had a bad ticker. <laughs> you know. So yeah, um, I should not by Nietzsche, or I should not by the uh, by the rationalists. I guess you would call them. 
be alive. You know, it, society would be better if I would be dead. Uh, well, I don't think so. Well, that's it. Yeah, but better in what respect? Um, you know, is that a philosophical question? Is that an economic question? You know, there's an economy to these things too. Um, well, well, that's you, true. But but yeah, how many that, of them? How many of the? Go ahead. Go ahead. That came, well, that came up with 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 healthcare. You know, I mean, do you do you toss hundreds of thousands of dollars into preserving somebody for the last six months of their life? And I think that's a that's a really important question and an uncomfortable question for us. You know, I talk it to my is. 91 year old mom and she says, don't waste your money. <laughs> well, I look at, uh, you know, I'm something of a history buff and there is a uh, uh, a thing I saw in uh, I was I was looking at the German propaganda during during it before World War II, basically the Nazi propaganda. And one, it shows a doctor, and uh, there is a person in front of him who is obviously either mentally or physically uh, retarded. And the question the doctor is poising, uh, poising is, do we really want to pay so much money to keep this guy alive? Which explains, what I think, a lot about the Nazis. Well, uh, but that's still that's that's the exact same concept as herd immunity. Um, it, you know, it says basically um, a pandemic virus is going to pick low hanging fruit. So, you know, most of the people who die of, of uh, COVID-19 have uh, otherwise pre-existing conditions or underlying conditions. And that's precisely in this very rough materialistic world. This is how this works is that the weak get picked off and the strong survive. Um, we being in the image of God, we being spiritual creatures as well as biological creatures, have a sense of moral obligation, you know? And that's where things get, that's where things get complicated for us at the top of the food chain here because we're basically, um, we're basically in a position where we say, uh, we care for everybody because every life has value. Did I lose you? I lost you. Hello, I'm Gary Duncan. The COVID-19 pandemic is affecting our routines, vocation, and worship. Recently, you received a mailing about our annual share fundraising event. However, during this unprecedented time, KFUO Radio is postponing our on-air portion of the share until June 25th through the 27th. Gifts can still be made through the mail and online, plus those gifts will be matched by this year's matching fund. 
I know times are tough, but when you are able to bless our ministry, please do so. Opportunities to share the hope that is ours through Jesus Christ increase at times like this. And as a partner, you provide for those in our neighborhoods and around the world to hear the gospel message through KFUO Radio. I pray for you and your safety, and I ask for you to pray for KFUO, our staff and volunteers, during this difficult time. And again, our plans are to move the broadcast dates of our on-air share until June 25th through the 27th. Thank you for listening and supporting KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance, inviting you to tune in this weekend at 7.45 a.m. Central, when I'm going to be sharing thoughts with you about Jesus feeding the 5,000 miraculously. So how does that miracle, accomplished with five barley loaves and two fish, apply to your life and mine today? Can I expect a miracle like that? Join me this Saturday and Sunday morning for Moments of Assurance Weekend right here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Friday on Issues Etc., we'll visit with Dr. Christian Kincaid, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for May, Living with Grief, Bound by Sorrow, Wrapped in Comfort, and we'll play Issues Etc. Soundbite of the Week. Listen and vote in advance at Facebook.com slash Issues ETC. Issues Etc. Live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. General Oliver Cromwell led the Parliament of England's armies against King Charles I during the English Civil War. Ordering his troops to cross a river to attack the enemy, he was later associated with giving the command to put your trust in God, but keep your powder dry. In 1643, Cromwell issued the Soldier's Pocket Bible to his troops. The Pocket Bible had just 16 pages and contained some 150 verses. They were from the Geneva Bible and all related to war and intended to inspire morale. Cromwell is said to have selected some of the verses himself and supervised the editing. The Soldier's Bible was reprinted several times, including for Union troops in the American Civil War. Cromwell's Soldier's Pocket Bible was one of the first shortened Bibles to be given to soldiers in their campaigns, a practice that continues today. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Well, welcome back to Let's Talk. The pastor is in. I'm program host Kip Allen. My guest pastor today is Pastor Bill Swirla from Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. And uh, Bill had written an article that I had been reading called Sola Scientia, which is an interesting thing. It's about what science can and can't do and how it relates to faith or doesn't relate to faith. So, Bill, you know, one of the things I was thinking about how uh, science perhaps is... Uh, where we talked about what was a settled science and what wasn't. I'm looking back about a hundred years when we had the eugenics movement, where science talked about the weed people and about how things could be improved and the race could be perfected. And, uh, well, <laughs> we know how that turned out. But that's, again, not science. That's, um, that's utilizing but, scientific knowledge, at that time a rudimentary knowledge of genetics, uh, to enact a what I would call a public policy or a kind of a philosophy for the future of humanity. 
Um, you know, science doesn't exist in a vacuum, just as no knowledge exists in a vacuum. Uh, people want to know what does this mean, how can we use it. Uh, science really can't answer those questions. It just simply discovers stuff. <laughs> and, and then what we do with it is what we do with it. And, uh, you know, you can, you can discover the inner workings of the atom. You can make a bomb with it. You can power the electrical grid with it. You can do nuclear medicine with it. There's lots of stuff you can do with it, but the basic physics that, that drives it all uh, really doesn't tell you how to use it or what's a good or a bad use. That's true, but you know, again, this is the point I was trying to raise earlier: was that uh, you know, the science is settled until something comes up again scientifically that says, "Oops, that was wrong. Let's start over again." And this is one of the things that really frightens me about today: as I hear people use that expression, "This is the science is settled all the time," and uh, that has led to some very, very ugly conclusions. I think that that term settled science means different things with different people. Um, as I said, uh, science as an enterprise does settle on models and mechanisms, on its theories, until it has good reason to change them. Um, I, always, uh, I always point out my favorite example as a chemist was the Bohr model of the atom. And that was really more of a a model by analogy, and so the electrons orbited around the nucleus of an atom like the planets around the sun. And it accounted for the energy states of electrons and certain um, observations about electrons in their excited states, but it really didn't account for the chemistry of particular atoms. And then quantum mechanics came along, which was a different way of looking at it, and developed the molecular orbital theory, which still holds today. And that model works better than the old Bohr model does. So rather than depicting electrons orbiting around a nucleus like planets around the sun, now there are these weird clouds of various lobes and shapes. They look like dumbbells or things like that. And um, it correctly predicts the chemistry of, of the various atoms uh, and their behavior and molecules. So it's a more useful model. The one wasn't wrong and the other isn't right. The one is less useful, the one is more useful. See, and, and th that's really how science works. So settled science is a popular way of speaking or a frustrated scientist will say that when somebody keeps questioning like the law of gravity or whether the Earth is flat or spherical, you know, the, the sometimes uh, scientists in, in public speaking will get kind of frustrated and say that science was settled 200 years ago. By that they mean we have no reason to look at that again. There may be a reason one day, but at the moment there's no reason to look at it. See what I'm saying? Um, I, I think that's more of a political, public policy, a uh, popular notion than it is a truly scientific one. And there's the danger where politics uses science as a weapon or a tool. Well, religion does too. Everybody does. <laughs> because, you know, science is. You had to tell me that, Bill. You had to tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, religion's one of the worst offenders. But, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, politicians love to use science to advance whatever 
tax spending program they have or whatever utopian, uh, you know, ideas they have. You take climate change, for example. There's a set of observations from various kinds of sciences, from meteorology and geology and, uh, you know, all kinds of things that say that we're in a period of, of, of uh, an accelerated period of climate change. Why we are, we don't know. That's a cause and effect question, which is really hard to discern. But uh, look at all the politics that's grown up around that observation, you see. And, and, and so it, for me, it's very frustrating because I understand what the scientists are saying. I don't necessarily agree with what the politicians are doing with what the scientists are saying, but that's a different question. Yeah, it is. And you know, it's being used as a blunt tool and a blunt weapon. But, uh, oh boy. It preys on ignorance. Well, you know, I think you, see, I, I think you see it today in, in um, uh, people, you know, and all the things they say about uh, Anthony Fauci, who's, you know, the NIH guy, who's the head of that yeah. task force. Um, he is a virologist. He's an epidemiologist. He's the guy who, who basically cracked the nut on HIV AIDS, okay? The guy's world class. But the one thing he's not is a public policy person or a politician. In fact, it's kind of funny, you know, he's, he's a scientist that's got the limelight on him. And generally, scientists don't like to have the limelight on them. There are even like Fauci bobbleheads and T-shirts, and uh, he's being parodied on Saturday Night Live. This is not usually the realm of the scientists, and they kind of get awkward in the public eye. You know, I know that. Those are my people. They don't like being in the public eye, and when they do, it gets a little awkward because the questions that the public is asking are different than the questions they're used to at scientific conferences. Well, you know, it, it reminds me once again, <laughs> well, I, I guess it's all more anecdotes on this program. <laughs> uh, back in my senior year Which makes year for bad science, by the way, and anecdotal evidence is not evidence at all. <laughs> oh, that's true, but so many Just people saying, think it is. Well, this happened for me, therefore, yeah. There are a but, lot of um, books. There are a lot of books subtitled "Your Doctor Does Not Want You to Know This" that are based on precisely that kind of non-evidence. Well, that's true, but this particular one uh, it, it shows the difference again between science and between people. Um, I was uh, back in golly, this is early seventies. Um, I was an intern at a, a TV station and uh, working for public service announcements. And this was a, there was a big push that year for awareness of venereal disease. Don't give a dose to the one you love most. <laughs> and uh, there was actually a Dr. Hook of the Medicine Show song about that. Yeah, uh, but I, there is. But I remember, talk, I ta I remember talking to uh, some people who said, well, you know, we could wipe this out tomorrow if we could just test and inoculate everybody. Well, yeah, you could, but gee, Manetli. Do you really want to have that kind of power? Hmm. There are, there, to my knowledge, there are only two diseases that we have actually wiped out. That is, they don't exist anywhere in the world. I, I forgot what they are, but they're both, they're both viral. And, I'm going to um, say smallpox and polio. No, no, actually, um, maybe smallpox. Not polio, though. Um, and it's kind of interesting, little rabbit trail with polio. You know, we never want to wipe out a virus. Got to remember things about a couple of things about a virus. 
they're God's creatures. They're they're not actually alive, but 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 you know they're part of the created order. God made them. You know, the the, the devil and his his crew. They're not creative. They can't produce anything. They can't make anything. All they can do is lie. So, so if it's in the created order, then it comes from God somehow. Um, and so viruses are there. They're, they usually do a lot of good. And, and, you know, we'd be in a world of hurt if there weren't viruses around. So, you know, we've got to kind of keep that one in our hip pocket. But I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> what were you talking about? <laughs> it shows that we're getting old, Bill. <laughs> yeah, I know that. Yeah. But that it, was a, what the, I was that saying was... was no, that, that, was a, that was a prelude to something else, though. Oh, wiping out diseases. So, so polio, it turns out, the polio virus, which we keep, you know, we keep it so that we never lose it. Um, the polio virus has proven to be incredibly effective in dealing with non-operable brain tumors. Wow, that I had not heard. Yeah, this is this is a new a new area of immunotherapy for cancer where you take a disabled virus like the polio virus and you basically let it tag the brain tumor and your immune system goes nuts and it basically dissolves your brain tumor in a matter of days. So your immune system is doing it, responding to the antagonism of a virus that previously created a lot of havoc. Now, it's been disabled, but nonetheless, it's serving a very useful purpose in something we have no tools for otherwise. So this is one of the marvelous things about you know, the created order and why we as, we as believers should not dismiss or deny science. We have to be very careful. Because when we do that, we are dismissing and denying the first article of the creed. Because our reason and our observation and our senses are first article gifts of God. And we don't want to, we, we never want to pit faith against our reason. They should be working side by side in their proper places. Okay, Bill. Now, now you're hitting the meat of the article here. And this is something I really wanted to raise to you. You have... Uh, you were in your past essentially you were a scientist and still you still am. have a sense <laughs> you still am you still are you still am good yeah, yeah i know again remember uh yeah and you still are but you're also a theologian yep and so how do we blend these two together now i i've always thought that that science and and religion somehow complement each other I'm not sure how, I'm not that smart, but I've always thought that they, they, they somehow blend together and that they do complement each other. What do you think? Well, you can say it a number of ways. I'll say it this way. Um, science teaches and discovers how the world works, but science cannot answer why the world is. See, that's a, that's a theological question, why? You know, meaning, purpose, these kinds of things. These are these are theological and sometimes philosophical, but they're not scientific questions. Uh, Galileo famously said, he said, the scriptures uh, tell us tell us um, how. Let's see how the hev oh, he said the scriptures tell us how the heavens go. They don't. Or they, look, try it again. The scriptures tell us how to go to heaven. They don't tell us how the heavens go. Okay, I, I finally got that. It took three tries. Um, in other words, what God reveals to us in the scriptures is why things are, not how they work 
why things are. And, and so, so theological knowledge, spiritual knowledge, faith knowledge is a third article gift. It comes by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. God tells us what we can't know. Give you a simple example. Let's take the Eucharist, okay, the Lord's Supper. So subject the bread and wine to scientific analysis, you know, before, during, after the consecration, whenever you want. Um, what are you going to find scientifically? Nothing more, nothing other than bread and wine. And yet we claim a reality that this bread is truly the body of Christ, this wine truly is the blood of Christ. We don't know that by our reason and observation and measurements. We don't know that scientifically. We know that by revelation, the word of Christ. That discloses to us what we cannot know by our reason and observation. And so that's how I laid the two side by side. There are things that can be known by observation, measurement, and reason, and then there are things that must be revealed and taken on faith. Well, for example, we can, uh, uh, we can look at the history of the Roman Empire and go back to, uh, go back to the, the era of the, uh, the first century when Jesus was walking. And interestingly to me is that we're finding more and more solid geological, not geological, archaeological evidence that this Bible story is true. Something that we had held for years simply because of a uh, belief, because of, of religion. And here's a case where science is saying, yeah, this looks like this really happened. Archaeology is a strange science. Um, and also, again, archaeology doesn't prove the Bible true. See, because archaeology is not seeking truth. Uh, it simply digs up stuff and tries to explain what it's dug up. Uh, when we look at archaeological evidence uh, of eras that we're interested in, say the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, or the first century Greco-Roman Empire, we see things that are consistent with what we read in the Bible. That doesn't prove that the Bible is true. It just means that the Bible is accurately, re accurately re representing the history of its time. It, it kind of proves that it's historical, I suppose, but it doesn't prove that it's true. There's no archaeological evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You can find his tomb, but it'll be empty. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no, there's nothing. I, I think somebody actually said that, you know, um, that we've we've researched the purported tomb of Jesus and we have found nothing of archaeological significance in it. And everybody said, yeah, that's right. He's risen. Hallelujah. You know? <laughs> but, you know, we do have we do have eyewitness accounts and that's very important to yeah. make a forensic case. But if those, that's, if, uh, eyewitness accounts are not archaeological data. Those are, those are, that's more of a, a forensic uh, retroductive case where you call witnesses Well, that's true, but archaeologically, for example, we found, uh, uh, we have found that you know, Pilate really was there at that time, and there had not been up until the discovery of that column any solid evidence that Pilate really existed, much less that he was the governor of Judea. Uh, that was one thing that came out just recently. There was a uh, discovery of a first of a uh, first uh, century uh, uh, of a first century recording of the recording uh, papyrus of of the Gospel of Mark, first century. Yeah, we and then, all, um, there's 
there's some classic ones like Erastus being the treasurer at Corinth. You, there, there's actually a pavement uh, inscription that says that. Uh, and what that does is it demonstrates the historicity of, of those documents, especially the Gospels and Acts. Um, it locates them in history, but it also demonstrates that they, they are reporting, um, they're, they're actually reporting accurately the events that occurred historically. This is not some legend that they're making up on the fly. Uh, because you get these little touch points of people outside the story that, that are actually hooked into history, Pontius Pilate, Erastus, other things like that. Uh, that's very important in making the historic argument that this actually took place. Well, again, that's, that's science where it is, uh, where the science of, uh, is of observation, if you will, is reinforcing the belief that uh, we have all had as uh, believing it being inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's it's science like forensics is science. The science of the of history, the science of the past, is tricky because you can't do the experiment where you go before the event so you can observe the event and then its effects. Um, that's more inductive science, experimental science. This, this is more eductive science in the sense that I can dig up fossils and surmise some things about them. Or I can dig up an ancient city and make some educated guesses about that city. But I can't go to the time before that city existed to watch it being built up because that's not possible. See, and, and so it's, a, it's, it's science in the sense that it's evidence-based, but it's a different way of doing science than, say, chemistry or physics or biochemistry or virology or things like that, where you can actually control your variables and do your experiments. Inductive versus eductive or retroductive. Uh, okay. Okay, I see that. Inductive versus, versus deductive. Uh, still, it, it's it, more, it's more the a... science of the courtroom. I beg your you pardon? Know, that's the science of a courtroom. Is, is, the, is, the, is the person guilty beyond a reasonable doubt or to the preponderance of the evidence? Not to absolute certainty, not to, not to account for every chunk of evidence, just the preponderance of the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the science of past history. You can never be totally certain. You can only be reasonably certain. But we as as Christians can be certain. I mean, the scripture tells us. Certain of what? <laughs> <laughs> certain, certain, certain of the that, resurrection, certain yeah, of the yeah, crucifixions. Yeah, yeah. Certain that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we have life in his name. As John says at the the almost end of his gospel in John 20, he wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. And that, that faith rests on a bit of evidence, the resurrection of the dead, uh, but it, it, it rests on a lot more than that, see? And, and that's, the, that's the whole spiritual side of faith. You can, you can argue the historicity of Jesus with somebody who doesn't believe, and they still won't believe, because we cannot by our own reason or strength believe. 
See, it's a third article thing, not a first article thing. This is where Christians get really confused. <laughs> and, and this is where I get really frustrated because they got their articles mixed up. They're trying to deal with faith as a first article thing. I can reason you into faith. And they're trying to deal with science as a third article thing. God has revealed to us a special science. So we have, we have, uh, we, we have special knowledge of how the world works. No, we don't. <laughs> and didn't Luther's have some things to say about reason? Uh, in in a third article sense, you know, he, he called reason whore reason only when uh, reason was trying to overrule the mysteries of God, not, not not trying to figure out how the world works. So again, this is this is like cherry picking Luther. Uh, Luther was Luther used that quote when he was arguing with Erasmus over the mystery of of predestination and uh, basically God's selection of us from before uh, the foundations of the world in Christ. That's a decidedly not reasonable way of speaking. <laughs> right? Or, or if reason were to say God can't be three and one, or Jesus can't be God and man, or you can't be sinner and saint at the same time. See, that would be reason intruding into the third article and revelation. So uh, I have a rule, stay in your lane and you don't crash into each other. <laughs> so so oh, he asked boy. me personally, see, as a chemist and a Christian, when, when I went to church, I was a Christian who happened to be a chemist. And in the laboratory, I was a chemist who happened to be a Christian. And those are perfectly compatible. Well, that's what I was trying to get at, I think, from the very beginning of this, is that science and religion are not necessarily opposed. In fact, they can be complementary. Well, I think a complementary is a good way of looking at it. You know, it kind of goes back to that. Remember that book by Niebuhr? I forgot which Niebuhr brother it was. But Christ against culture, Christ for culture, Christ, uh, you know, it's the relationship of Christ and culture. And so I think there are people who would really like to pit science versus religion or science versus scripture. And then there are people who see a coherence or a complementarity. I prefer complementarity because I don't try to harmonize the two. I don't have to make scripture yeah. talk science, and I certainly don't want science to talk scripture. Well, you've because got you know, apples scripture and oranges, but they're, both, but they're both fruits. They're both fruit. Yeah, that's right. They make for a good fruit salad, I suppose. But, <laughs> but, but, but you can't make one into the other, and you can't try to make them interchangeable. And, and that's for, otherwise, otherwise each ceases to be. When you make scripture scientific, then you're making it less than the word of God. And when you make science into something scriptural, then you're making science more than it should be. You're turning it into a philosophy or religion. Well, it's, what is the I can, actual I definition? I can sense you're having problems with that, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I, you know, well, I, well, I'm thinking, you know, for example, the, the, one of the definitions of faith is that which is accepted as true without necessarily having concrete evidence. Uh, whose definition is that? Mine. <laughs> oh, okay. There's two. There are two in the Bible. Uh, the 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 one is you know basically the Pauline idea that faith is trust in the promise of God of salvation in Christ. Okay, that's that's kind of the the favored Lutheran one. And then the other is Hebrews. Faith is a certainty of things unseen. 
ah, which is kind of go. kind of the way we're talking about the and that, that doesn't mean not visible to the naked eye that means not apparent to our reason well so Bill, you go. hear the music coming up I that's do. Stephanie's way of telling us that we're coming to the end thank you Stephanie <laughs> Bill as usual it has been an intriguing hour Thank you so much for being on it. And we're going to do this again in the not real distant future. You've been listening to The Pastor Is In, a weekly chance to chat with the pastor. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting. The Pastor is in on Worldwide KFUO.